Thursday morning, the 24th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday, as you know, the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom announced its next leader. I, Dame Cheryl Gillan, the Joint Returning Officer for the Conservative and Unionist Party leadership election, declare that the total number of eligible electors was 159,320. The turnout in the election was 87.4%. The total number of ballot papers rejected was 509. The number of votes given to each candidate was as follows. Jeremy Hunt, 46,656. Boris Johnson, 92,153. And therefore, I give notice that Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. Let's talk about this now with our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. And Sean, if nothing else, Mr Johnson's victory was decisive. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the two-thirds. Uh, majority over Jeremy Hunt in the end we had wondered and kind of speculated it would it be a bit tighter because there had been reports in the UK that some Tory voters were leaning more towards Mr Hunt as kind of the more moderate of the two candidates but in the end it was it was fairly decisive and I think Jeremy Hunt acknowledged that afterwards saying that this time around it had to be someone who'd initially backed Brexit he hadn't, he was like Theresa May a Remain voter at the time who was now talking about trying to deliver it but Boris Johnson has the overwhelming support of his party at least whether he has the support of the public and then other EU leaders mm-hmm. who he'll need the support of to get a deal done. That's going to be the big question. Okay, and I suppose uh, the other question uh, this morning is statesman or buffoon, what can we expect from uh, the next British Prime Minister? One thing about yesterday's speech was uh, that whilst it may have been short on substance, substance that we might get in his speech today when he assumes the role of Prime Minister, uh, it certainly was easy on the ear, uh, funny uh, and witty. And I know that there will be people around the place who will question the wisdom of your decision. Uh, and there may even be some people here who still wonder what, quite what they have done. A very good public speaker. He always has been, and he's always been quite engaging in those speeches and in the media, I suppose. He gets a different light thrown on it when he has become a Tory leader and Prime Minister. Everyone judges him to a different, uh, different kind of spectrum of things. I saw some people comparing it to a kind of an after-dinner speech in that affable and more relaxed way and he was even making jokes about how some people would question the wisdom of him uh, being accepted and, and then just some bizarre comments. I never honestly never thought I would hear a British Prime Minister say the word dude mm. let alone say dude we're going to energise the country uh, as he did in his kind of rallying cry towards the end but it was taken up well in the hall quite affably they they laughed through it and you're right to the speech there wasn't a huge amount of detail that we can pin down on there was a little bit, just a small glimmer of some understanding of the complexities of the problem when he did talk about how daunting it was possibly being. He said he wasn't daunted, but did acknowledge the complexity of trying to reconcile the two sides of Brexit, one being trying to keep a good relationship, a good trading relationship with the EU, and the other having their own self-determination, their own rules. So whatever we can say, and people will comment about him being a buffoon or being, mm. you know, coming across like a bit of an Egypt, he is a very clever man. You don't get to that sort of position without being clever and no one has ever doubted mm. that, even if 
you can question whether or not he does have a full mastery of the details and whether he presents it that way. So it will be interesting to see now how that unfolds and yeah. whether we get more detail in his prime minister. He, he reckons he can reconcile the dichotomy of views, but how can he do that uh, if we take uh, this red line position of its backstop or no deal? Well, we've already seen, firstly, some MPs from across the House who refuse to support Theresa May's deal now say that they want to get a deal. Secondly, we've got a new dynamic in Europe, and I've seen the incoming um, president of the European Commission say that she wants a constructive relationship. We want to see a warm and constructive relationship with European colleagues. I think that Boris will be absolutely clear about how warm he wants that relationship to be and how we're going to do everything that we can to agree a deal that works for the UK, that can get through the House of Commons, um, as well as, of course, preparing for no deal should it come to that. The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, speaking to BBC Radio 4's Today programme earlier today. And they talk about squaring circles, Sean, but there really is a, a dichotomy of views, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, this is still the, the sticking point that no one seems to have an answer to. Uh, I don't believe at the moment that Boris Johnson has an answer to it. The, the, been fine sound bites on getting things done, but there's been um, no actual hard detail that was, I mean, seen in some of the articles he's written in the last few days when he said, you know, we had the technology 50 years ago to send a man to the moon. Surely we can have the technology to police the Irish border and, you know, makes a nice sound bite and makes a lot of people mm. go, oh yeah, that's kind of reasonable. But when you actually crack down into it, well, it's not all that reasonable because you can very easily please people who are willing and uh, know and want to cooperate with, mm. with custom checks across the border with technology. Much harder to do it for people who are trying to sneak across and go down rat run. And so, there's been many polite congratulations for Mr. Johnson on winning the contest and to becoming uh, the leader of uh, the Tory party before becoming Prime Minister today. But I, I think the message has been clear, not just from here, but from uh, across Europe. There will be no renegotiation of the withdrawal deal. We have to be very clear that an orderly exit of the UK from the European Union is in the overwhelmingly interest of both parties and this will only be possible if citizens' rights, a financial settlement and the backstop that ensures no hardening of the border on the island of Ireland are guaranteed and the way forward is that the withdrawal agreement actually provides these guarantees. David McAllister, the chair of the European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, speaking to BBC Radio 4 earlier this morning. And I think, Sean, he was clearly outlining Europe's position in terms of the backstop. That's right. That's been the, the solid message through Simon Coveney at Haynes over the weekend to point that out. The Taoiseach has said it as well. And it's been said by other EU leaders. Ursula von der Leyen as well has made the comments. So that is still the position. You you can't go and, you know, re- renegotiate this withdrawal agreement. And it's going to be interesting to see because they have also mm. said, look, if we if you come with something that achieves the same goals, but is different, we will listen to it. And that might be the fudge that someone comes across to get it. But no one has so far has actually provided that and has provided that way forward. So we'll have to wait and see if Boris Johnson has some sort of miracle solution. But his own position on, on the backstop even itself has slipped off so many times. He was one of the arch protagonists against it, resigned from Cabinet over the way the Brexit talks were going, and yes, voted for the deal when it was in the Commons earlier on this year. So he has flipped off his positions a number of times, went back to the very hard line position during his campaign, 
and we'll have to see whether that's actually going to be his negotiating position with the EU leaders or if there's going to be another change. Polite congratulations uh, indeed from every corner of uh, the globe, including congratulations from Donald Trump. We have a really good man is going to be the Prime Minister of uh, the UK now, Boris Johnson. Good man. He's tough and he's smart. We have a really good man is going to be the Prime Minister of uh, the UK now, Boris Johnson. Good man. He's tough and he's smart. Uh, They're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump and people are saying that's a good thing. That they like me over there. That's what they wanted. That's what they need. That's what they need. He'll get it done. Boris is good. He's going to do a good job. I think Nigel's someplace in this audience. Where's Nigel? Where is he? Nigel Farage. He's here someplace. I saw him. I said, what is he doing here? He's a little older than most of you. Where is he? Nigel. Nigel. I'll tell you what. He got 32% of the vote from nowhere. Over in UK. Nigel. Thank you, Nigel. I said, what's Nigel doing here? He's a little older than you folks. But he did a great job. And I'm, I know he's going to work well with Boris. They're going to do some tremendous things. Uh, do you think Donald Trump's endorsement of Mr. Johnson uh, will uh, play to his favour or against him? <laughs> it depends on who you talk to and who you believe. I suppose a lot of people saying, you know, uh, that for us in between, it's clowns to the left of us, jokers to the right, was the, the joke doing the round yesterday. And other people saying that having a good relationship with the U.S. Prime or U.S. President rather mm. will be very helpful for the U.K. after uh, Brexit when they're going to negotiate their own trade agreement. I mean, certainly mm. it's always usually a good thing to be on the, the right side of the American president for all sorts of reasons. They're probably the UK's strongest ally at the moment mm. when you take out the European countries and that relationship is going to be key for them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of strange and polite and veiled yep. um, sort of congratulations from, from all sorts of words. And a, a bit odd for Mr. Johnson from uh, the Tories' perspective uh, for the president, Donald Trump, to suggest that himself and Nigel Farage might work well together. Yeah, well, I mean, they might. It depends on what position he takes. And Nigel Farage could work very, very hard against him otherwise. But, you know, there was all sorts of talk. Donald Trump and, and Nigel Farage were obviously very close. Farage spoke at one of his rallies when he was trying to become prime minister. Mm. And Johnson and Farage have been aligned quite closely on a lot of their positions uh, on Brexit. But now it's going to be different. It's a bit like when the Ranker took open he, over here. You're, you're not shouting to the sidelines anymore. You are now the person in the hot seat. You're doing the negotiations and you have to bring everybody around the table, not only the hardliners like Farage, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, but you've got to bring around a majority in your own party, the likes of the, of the Dominic Greaves, of the Michael Goves, other characters who you're not going to now have to get the support of if you want to have an orderly Brexit and want to achieve what he, what he said in his opening speech to get Brexit done. Right, and he's chosen a Remain uh, MP to become his chief whip in uh, the form of Mark Spencer. Uh, indeed, uh, there could be a, a push against uh, Johnson from uh, the Conservative backbenches uh, who may seek a confidence motion in him. The Labour Party may seek a confidence motion in him. There could be a, an election and the Labour Party will vote to remain. <laughs> 
we have a position. That position is that we are now campaigning for Remain. We're, we have said very clearly that any deal that were done with the uh, the European Union um, should be put to the uh, election in a further vote, to the public in a further vote. And and that is our position as it stands. Labour MP Barry Gardner outlining his party's position. I suppose, Sean, that tells us uh, that we should not really know what to expect today. Yeah, there's so, so many different uh, possibilities to come out of today. Usually when a new party leader goes to take over as Prime Minister. It's a fairly simple thing. The old one in Theresa May will go today and she'll uh, resign uh, with the Queen and then Boris Johnson will go and meet her and she'll invite him to form a government. And usually that's a pretty easy formality. At the moment, it's not a formality because even with all of the Conservative Party plus the DUP, there's only a razor-thin majority in the House of Commons for Boris Johnson. Then you have these other uh, MPs, some of whom are going to resign from Cabinet today, Philip Hammond and and uh, others who say they can't work in a Cabinet with Boris Johnson. Mm. Uh, and then you've got the Labour side of things who may try and force a confidence motion as well. So there's a lot of speculation in the UK that Boris Johnson may be the shortest lived Prime Minister in the history of the UK, no matter what happens. There's mm. others, even among his own supporters, who think that he should go and seek his own mandate. Yeah. But I think all of that is probably going to come after October, regardless of what happens, whether we get a deal or, or no deal, because really the Brexit talks are paramount. And for anyone this side of the Irish Sea or on the other side uh, to call an election would probably be farcical. But interestingly, it is actually one of the few conditions where the EU have said they would countenance another extension mm. to Brexit is if there was a general election in the UK. So there's, there's so many ways that this could still go and uh, playing with fire with yeah. something which is going to be very, very serious. Well, it's going to be a very interesting day and uh, if uh, the dude defies his critics, uh, it'll be because of the E at the end of Dodd, which is uh, to energise British politics. Uh, and I think people are expecting today that uh, he'll assume the role as Prime Minister and will bring about a, a very different approach to British politics. Uh, his cabinet will be very different. Uh, I think they're expecting a, a a lot of uh, women in the cabinet and a uh, much younger cabinet for that matter. Yeah, that's the general expectation. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you already mentioned uh, appointing a Remainer in terms of chief of staff. There is quite a, an expectation that he will stock his cabinet with Brexiteers, with supporters of his own, people who backed him, which would be understandable. I think he wants to avoid what we saw with Theresa May, where she tried to please everybody at the cabinet and ended up with a deadlock and people resigning left, right and centre to the point of where it almost wasn't news anymore. So, who are going to be who's going to be in the key positions of power in the UK will be very very interesting because it, mm. it could well influence the talks and all of this is in the context of no deal coming down the line and whether and we'll be watching northern secretary obviously most of all Oh, the Northern Secretary, of course. I mean, you, you would like to think, I don't think anyone thought too much of Karen Bradley. She didn't have a huge grasp of the brief, Brokenshire, maybe a little bit more uh, before that. So people will be looking to see who is appointed there and whether they have a greater grasp of the brief and can bring around some sort of reconciliation because at the moment there is uh, there's no executive in the North. It's one of the longest un- unsitting parliaments. But also those key votes that we've talked about before, Michael, that were held in the House of Commons to change the law in the North via London should there be no uh, installed executive gives another impetus for people to maybe get around the table and take back the power again. So there's there's a lot of far-reaching implications that's going to come out of today. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment, Sean. Thank you indeed. Thanks a bit, Michael.
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, Theresa May will go to uh, Buckingham Palace today and uh, officially resign her position as uh, Prime Minister. And uh, Boris Johnson will then become uh, the British Prime Minister. Let's take a look now at how the papers in Britain are covering uh, this uh, this morning. And uh, the Metro, first of all, meet the new dude at number 10. Don't panic with an exclamation mark, uh, the headline there, and uh, maybe that says it all, and it emphasises the dude message from Mr Johnson, or Bojo, as uh, the Metro puts it. Bojo vows to de-deliver Brexit, U united the UK, de-defeat Corbyn, and e-energise Britain. The Sun, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, that's what it says on the front page of uh, The Sun today, Bojo is our new PM Hey, dude, don't make it bad. Boris, I'll deliver Brexit and beat Jez. The Daily Mail... EU talks looming, rebel MPs plotting, but after Boris wins landslide vote, with a burst of optimism on the day Britain baked, a Brexit-weary nation cry is now bring us sunshine. And uh, there's Boris uh, with uh, his hand high in the air, a little bit like Eric Morecambe, and just to make the point, they have a photograph of Eric Morecambe right beside him. The Daily Express, hang on to your hats, here comes Boris, new PM, I'll deliver Brexit, unite the country defeat Corbyn and energise Britain. That's uh, the dude message. So EU bureaucrats and do-mongers be warned to hang on to your hats. Here comes Boris. The Daily Mirror has uh, four ridiculous photographs of uh, the next uh, Prime Minister. That's Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, as it says. It's really not funny anymore. Uh, Along with uh, the four photographs of uh, Boris, one of them holding on to Union Jacks as desperately as he can whilst uh, he could couldn't escape from a zip wire. Another has him uh, waist high in water in a pair of uh, dungarees. Another playing cricket, looking particularly uh, ridiculous again on that zip wire. The Daily Telegraph, I'm the dude, is uh, the headline uh, along with uh, that similar photograph, uh, which uh, sort of looks like Eric Morgan. It has some resemblance of uh, Benny Hill, for that matter. Prime Minister Johnson to appoint Brexiteer Cabinet as he spends his first 100 days in number 10 focusing solely on leaving the EU on the 31st of October. The Times, Johnson goes to work, can do spirit for Britain as he becomes PM today. Pretty Patel offered a top role, but hunts future in doubt. Power at last is the headline on I. Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, tasked with delivering on his Brexit rhetoric. New Conservative leader promises to unite nation to a backdrop of furious reaction against his appointment. The Guardian, an ambition is fulfilled, but what next for Britain? With Boris photographed again on the front page, two thumbs up in that particular photograph. He's pointing on the front of the Financial Times and uh, the headline there, Johnson wins race for number 10 as IMF warns over no-deal Brexit fund cites threat to global economy, record numbers of ethnic minority MPs in Cabinet. A more sober piece of coverage there from the Financial Times, not the sort of coverage uh, that uh, you'll get on the front page of the Scottish Sun today, which says, uh-oh, it's Boz Lightfear. 
to insanity. Uh, blundering Bojo, new PM. Nats predict no deal chaos and uh, cartoon animated uh, picture of Boris Johnson uh, depicted as Boris Lightyear on the front of that. To insanity and beyond. Boz Light Fear, the Scottish Sun today. That's how the British papers are covering the election of Boris Johnson as the leader of the Conservative Party. He will become Prime Minister. I think it's expected later today. But let's bring things a little bit closer to home and from the front page of the British newspapers to the front pages of the local newspapers and Marie Kearns is with us in studio this Wednesday morning as I'm is always the case I'm still laughing at some of those headlines, yeah, Michael. Very witty stuff, all right, no doubt about it. Uh, let's talk about what's uh, happening uh, on uh, the front pages of uh, the local papers uh, this week and we begin in Mead, the Chronicle, uh, leading with another Fine Gael piece of controversy. That's right. It's the dramatic decision of the Fine Gael party to deselect Senator Ray Butler from the general election ticket. It's still making the news. And John Donoghue is writing that Butler's departure from the scene will open the door for pole-topping trim councillor Noel French to be added to the Fine Gael ticket in Meath West, which would be very interesting. Councillor French, who's currently out of the country, didn't respond to the possibility but the paper's wondering how Minister Jamie English and Councillor Sarah Riley, who have already been selected as party candidates, will react to his addition to the ticket. You'll remember the mm. Councillor French, of course, Michael mopped up two th- almost 3,000 first, first preference votes in the Trim electoral area in the recent local elections. So he has a lot of support in yeah. the area. So that mm. will be interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting story, but we're speaking in a, a vacuum. There really is a, a void of information. There was uh, one line sentence uh, which uh, was uh, published by Fine Gael in a, a press mm. statement uh, to say that uh, Senator Butler had been deselected uh, as an election candidate. Uh, no reason was given why. We don't know why. I mean, there's no. been lots of speculation. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of controversy surrounding Ray Butler. We know that this is the end of his political career. Well, you'd have to assume that it's the end of his political career. Uh, and it is very unusual for somebody to be deselected. And you would have to think to yourself that there must be good reason for that to happen. Uh, I don't think Ray Butler has made any comments. No, he hasn't mm-hmm. in the, in the yeah. paper this week. They've just said that he was uncontactable for comments this yeah. week. He hasn't issued any statement or response. Yeah, Fine Gael hasn't elaborated on it. Uh, there's been a, a deafening silence on it. Uh, you'd have to wonder what the reason for it was. Yes. Mm. But for a senator, as mm. we said before, to be deselected is very unusual. Yeah, well, for anybody to be deselected, mm. and usually it's quite clear. Uh, I mean, I think normally you know the reason, because uh, it is an exceptional thing to happen, mm. uh, and usually it's explained, well, because of this, yes. we're reacting... Uh, by deselecting uh, the candidate. Uh, yes. But uh, there's been no explanation, just a very brief statement to say that uh, Ray Butler has been deselected. And mm. I suppose the fact he's not commenting himself, it doesn't really throw much, you know, we don't, mm. we can't get much more yeah. information on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will I move on? Oh, do please, yeah. We'll go to Drada. The Drada Independent yes. uh, takes a, a look at uh, the life and times of another politician That's and right. indeed uh, reflects on the passing of uh, Tommy Byrne. That's right. And there's lots of glowing tributes inside the paper. That's well worth reading. Uh, on the front page, they also carry a report on the first ever Pride Parade, which took place last weekend. And the organiser of that, Peter James Nugent, told the paper that he cried with pride 
guide walking through the streets of the town as he led the parade and there's lots of mm. pictures in that to, ma- to mark yeah. that significant event. It seemed to be uh, quite a significant uh, event, uh, quite a, a big event. Yes, and yeah. it was really colourful mm. spectacle mm. as yeah. well and lots yeah. of people had to support that so yeah. nice to yeah. see. And that's it, a lot of people involved and a lot of yes. people supporting it for that matter. Uh, to Dundalk then and of course uh, the blessings of uh, the graves uh, right. making the headlines uh, not because people were paying respect to their loved ones. No, I mean that's the story that we were covering on the show yesterday about uh, the incident at that and all three of the papers are actually covering that story not surprisingly on Mm. the front page. On page 8 of the Dundemocrat uh, there's an interesting story Tia Clark is writing that Dundalk comedian Sinead Culbert and her comedy partner Sue Collins are currently in talks with Netflix Michael to produce their own series so that would be really exciting if that happens <laughs> it really would be it'd be very exciting for their bank balances yes. as well I'm sure Okay, uh, so hopefully that will materialise yeah, well, best of luck to them with that of course Yeah, the Argus then is also yes. uh, one of uh, the main papers in Dundalk and yes. obviously that leads uh, with uh, the cemetery uh, that's right and uh, the terrible terror that people found themselves in there but uh, you've yes. been looking inside the pages Yes well. and there is, if you enjoy your summer festivals Michael there's mm. lots of them on around now but be, check out page 6 of the Argus mm. because they have lots of details of the annual Black Rock Film Festival and that kicks off on Thursday August 29th and there really is lots happening there with you know movie mm. showings and all that kind of thing for those who are into their films um, so that's uh, making the news there Very good I'm sure Sinead will have much to say about that later <laughs> Let's uh, stay in Dundalk and uh, finish up uh, this week with uh, the leader again, the Dowdalls Hill yes. Cemetery, St. Patrick's Cemetery, uh, making uh, for the main story there. But yes. uh, you've been looking again inside That's the paper. That's right. And the headline on page two is given over to Dundalk's Kate O'Connor following her success at the European Under-20 Championships in Sweden last weekend when she became the first Irish athlete to win a medal at an international heptathlon. So well done to her. Okay, well done to her. What is a heptathlon? I think it's the javelin. Okay. You know, there's a mixture of um, <laughs> challenges. I think mm. it's the, as far as I know, it's the javelin and I know there's a race and I'm not sure what the third one is right, but okay. I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. But And you obviously, you know, you have to excel in all of them. So she won a silver medal okay. overall. So okay. well done to her. Right. Well done to her indeed. Okay, thanks for that Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, well, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Marie is going to take calls now. You might want to comment on some of uh, those stories that have been making uh, the papers locally or indeed uh, the British newspapers uh, for that matter something else you've been hearing or as I say if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us we'd love to hear from you our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM Now some 46,300 people have been put on penalty rates of uh, the job seekers allowance uh, since uh, sanctions were introduced in 2011 let's talk about uh, this with Breed O'Brien of policy with the INOU, the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Good morning to you, Breed, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, this means uh, that people are on a, a rate of €44 Euro a week uh, at present, is it? No, it means basically what it, it means is that if somebody is deemed as not engaging as the department would like them to do so, they can lose approximately 25%. It varies depending on your age and the, the, the what you are receiving, the full payment, but it's roughly a quarter is what people will lose. In the past, basically, if, if they felt you were not engaging as they would like, if you're not genuinely seeking work, GSW, as, as, as it was known, you could lose your entire payment. And generally, they were reluctant to do that to people. So in 2011, they introduced this penalty rate and they have applied that when mm. in the past 
they tended not to apply it. So they cut you by 44, going from 203 to 159. Yes, if you're yeah. over 26 and on the full payment, yes. Okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's roughly 25%, because if, if you're a young person, you'll lose roughly 25 euros or 26 at this stage. That's yeah. for 18 to 24-year-olds yeah. and 33 yeah. euro for people aged between yeah. 25 yeah. and 26. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And why is it that people would be uh, put onto these lower rates? You said it's because they're not I- engaging in uh, looking for employment, uh, but uh, that doesn't make sense, does it? Well, we feel it's it, like sanctions should only be applied as an absolute last resort. But what they really need to be trying to do is making sure they're engaging with people. That often they and that they are providing a service that people see and experience as one that will really help them get a job. Um, the people might be penalised for maybe not participating on a particular program, an education or training program, mm. an employment program. People may have been on ones in the past and it felt they didn't get them anywhere and feel they're really going and another one isn't going to get them anywhere again. So that's why we feel it's really important that they really do work with people to find the best option for that individual. For some people, it's just a case of giving them good advice to be able to find a job, maybe good advice on their CV, how to apply for a job, how to present yourself at an interview. For other people, it's a longer road. People may have been out of work a long time. They may not have had their first job yet. So they do really need to vary the service and the supports that they give people, um, it, you know, depending on the person's need. But sanctions really should be an absolute last resort uh, and, 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 and only used in that regard and all else has failed. But we feel if you really do provide the service that really is there to help the person and people see that and experience that, then we would see even fewer sanctions. And a, a lot of people penalised so far this year, close on 6,000, uh, around 12,000 yeah. undoubtedly by the end of the year. It was over 12,000 uh, last year and over 13,000 the year before that. Yes. It's, I mean, the, the figure was highest a few years back, but it, it seems to be in and around between twelve and 13,000 the past number of years. We will be concerned that as if, now mind you, this is a very big if of Brexit over the horizon, but if the, the labour market continues as it is, then those who become or remain unemployed will be people who are maybe more distant or more vulnerable, and that really what we need to be seeing is a very much a supportive service. They went down the activation route in the crisis, but they really now need to be looking at how do they deliver an inclusive public employment service that anybody of working age can use under the new Future Jobs Ireland policy it is proposed that Intro would also be providing career advice to people in work who may be working in jobs that are unlikely to survive into the future. So they really do need to be developing those skills around providing good career advice and engaging with people with adults and providing the service that people and indeed employers see as the mm. place to go, you know, to get to find work, to find employees, to get good advice. You seem uh, to be suggesting to, though yeah. that it's the fault of the system. Um, I think what we need is a system that engages well with people. For some people, their experience of the system has not been a good one. Their experience of trying to find work has not been a good one. That cannot have a knock-on effect on people's confidence, on people's belief on what's on offer. Um, and people can have a sense of, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I'm being called in again to do something that isn't going to work. I'm just going to be made to need you out of again. So I think that also needs to be borne in mind that often people can maybe, if they haven't had much joy finding work, um, you know, that that has a knock-on effect on people. So we really, so the system really does need to be the one that is, that is 
going the extra mile. They're really supportive of people. They're really working with people. And so sanctions then are really used very much as a last resort when absolutely all else has failed, but all else needs to be tried first. That's a terrible attitude, though, isn't it? Uh, To be saying to yourself, well, you know, the system is such that I'm not going to bother. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. No, I think what people have had, unfortunately poor experiences of the system and the supports that they've gotten or they've gone on courses that they that didn't help them progress on maybe yeah. onto another course yeah. or maybe into a job yeah. and that does knock people's confidence back that does leave people feeling down in themselves that does have people losing faith both in themselves and then what is on offer uh, to them and, and so that's why I think it's really important that when they engage with people, that they make sure that people are being offered and going on the option that's the most suitable for them and will help that person make progress at the time. It seems like a terrible attitude. It seems like a sense of entitlement that people are saying, I, I, I got the opportunity of going on a, a course and because I wasn't able to make something of myself after doing that course, it's the fault of the system. So the system is brutal. So I'm not going to engage with the system. No, Michael, that is not what I've said at all. It's very much, it is, I mean, you must understand, Michael, the impact that unemployment can have on people's health and well-being. So if you've gone on something in the past and it didn't get you anywhere, Mm. and then you're then feeling, wondering, will this get me somewhere? What's going to happen? Mm. So it very much hasn't, so that's why we need, we certainly in our experience and and the stuff that works well Mm. is the engagement that really works with people Mm. that really tries to assess where is the person at and really and and support with with, with, you know Mm. them to get and you can you can the strides people make when they Mm. have have that type of engagement Mm. can be absolutely extraordinary Mm. so really it's around making sure that the resources that are at 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 our disposal are used well and to maximum effect what is good for one person may not be good for somebody else. And so very much if the system then is making sure it's, it's, it's engaging with people uh, uh, well, then we're using the resources better. Mm. And, and, you know, and so it's really trying to get mm. that right, get that equation right, and that can make a massive difference. And when that's done, it really does make a massive difference to people's well, health and well-being in their lives. OK, well, I, I think a lot of things uh, make a, a difference to people's health and well-being. And with respect, Breed, I do have some understanding of, of what it's like to be unemployed and the effect that it has on your health and well-being and the effect that it has on your mental health and your confidence and your ability to hold your head up high and to feel as though yeah. that there's a purpose to life. Uh, but I, I also thought in those circumstances, circumstances, you did anything and everything to try and improve your situation and that you were grateful if you got opportunities rather than blame, uh, blaming other people for the hand that you've been dealt. Um, it did get, again, as I said, if people have been on something in the past that didn't work for them, that then can have a negative effect. Um, and so I think that's really trying to get that, that right, some matching stuff up with, with, for people you know, and can make a massive difference for people. And yes, a lot of people want to be able to engage, to be able to participate. So if somebody maybe is on something that really isn't suitable for them and maybe they're not suitable for it, that might then be stopping somebody else who might get something out of it. So again, it's just the system making sure that when, you know, that engaging well with people and offering people the right choice and that then creates win-wins all around and we use the resources that we have available to maximum effect and get the best outcomes for everybody. Okay, but what does that mean? I mean, uh, surely uh, there's 
at least another side to your argument in that people have to take personal responsibility and have to accept the system for what it is. And if they're being asked to do something that they don't want to do or don't like the idea of doing or that they don't have confidence in doing that on occasion, they have to do it and they can't turn up at Intrio or wherever it is and say, I want to be an airline pilot. Generally, it's very much it's around working with people and a lot of, you know, people, when people are engaged with and are, are and worked with, you know, then you end up with good responses and you end up with good results. Um, and as I said, sanctions should only be used as a last resort when all else has failed. Why though? So it's really... I mean, who is this? Who is this about? It should be just still a last resort. But but the argument you're making, the argument you're making, is coming from the perspective that the state has a responsibility to look after people. The state has a responsibility to get jobs for people that the people want, that they'll enjoy, that they'll say pays me enough money and that sort of thing, rather than people having to get jobs themselves or ask the state for help in doing that. And what I am saying, Michael, is that the state needs to work with people so that the supports it has in place are used to best effect and help people to secure the the best option for them so that they can make progress and can end up economically independent. Mm. So basically, it's using the resources to best effect. And taking, making, taking the time to engage with people and to ensure that people end up on the best option. And it is, and that is using then the state's, mm. in the state's own interest to do this, because then it's using the resources it has better. And the, and and so the state everything and, works and, out works out for the state better. It works out for the individual better. But you're, you're, you're and it's part of it's part of the department's own mission statement to be providing person-centered services. So it's very much around them, for, you know, yeah. keeping with their own mission well, statement that's by, by and that, using that's their resources best. Uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 trying to create a win-win for everybody, so it isn't a lose-lose. Um, and the reality is. Some people are great at finding jobs. No mm. problem at all. It's a skill in itself and some people are very good at it. Others are not and they need... T- 10%. 10% are um, the unemployed. Some, I, I, in the population. Some, I, yeah. some people are, 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 are very good at finding work. Remember, that those without work are not necessarily captured by the unemployment statistics. The number is greater. And so some people are very good at finding work. Unfortunately, others aren't. And they need support and assistance to be able to do that. Agreed. Um, Agreed. It's a skill set in itself, and it's a skill that not everybody has. Okay, Braid, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Thank Thank you. you. Braid O'Brien, Head of Policy and Media with the INOU, the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we'll uh, come to your comments uh, shortly, but uh, let's uh, stay with uh, the election of uh, Boris Johnson. The leader of uh, the Conservative Party is set to become uh, the next Prime Minister later in the day. And we'll talk about this now with Helen McEntee, Finnegal DD, for me, the Eastern Minister of State for European Affairs. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Do you believe Mr Johnson will make for a good Prime Minister? Well, I think time will tell, obviously, and it's important to congratulate him on, on being appointed as leader of the Conservative Party. As you've said, he'll most likely be, and I'm assuming, appointed Prime Minister later on today, Theresa May. I think we'll take her last leader's questions this morning. Um, and really, you know, what I said previously was Tisha and Tanishta and uh, members of government have said is that we will work constructively with whoever is Prime Minister. So we will work constructively with Boris Johnson. Um, and I think really for us, 
you know, on a number of issues, nothing has changed. Um, the Taoiseach, in, in a very short statement yesterday, outlined his three priority areas that he wanted to engage mm. with the Prime Minister on initially, that being Brexit, obviously, first and foremost, Northern Ireland, which I know the Taunashta, obviously hugely engaged with talks to try and reinstate an executive in the North, and then, of course, bilateral relations, and that accounts, I think, for all of us from all political parties within all departments. So, we, you know, we will work with him. Uh, we'll wait to see who he appoints within his cabinet, what team he brings together. Um, but on the Brexit issue, and I suppose a lot of it is coming back to it because he very clearly in his short remarks yesterday and statement said that they were leaving on the 31st. For us, nothing has changed. Um, and leaving on the 31st, absolutely, is their own prerogative. But to do so in an orderly fashion is what we will want and, and what we hope to achieve. So just explain to us uh, your understanding of uh, the legal position is it possible uh, for the United Kingdom to leave on the 31st of October with a deal? Or does British legislation at this stage mean that it's too late? No, absolutely not. I mean, as it currently stands, the legal default position, if they don't ratify the withdrawal agreement, is that they would leave without a deal. So even though we've Mm -hmm. seen, and I, I think it's probably confusing for all of us, we've seen so many votes and so many different amendments over the past number of months where the House of Commons has come out and said, we don't want a no deal. However, that doesn't actually prevent it from happening. The only way at the moment, albeit you have a referendum, you have a, a general election, mm. which could possibly require then an extension, and that would be, I would assume, approved by 27 EU member states, or if they ratify the withdrawal agreement, you also have the option for them to withdraw the Article 50 process. The Article 50 process... when Which would mean they would remain. But if they are to leave on the 31st of October, they'd ha- either have to agree to the withdrawal agreement or leave without a deal. There is no prospect of a renegotiation under British law by the 31st of October. Well, there's no prospect of renegotiating the withdrawal agreement, and and that's very much from the EU side. Um, I know that Boris Johnson and many others have talked about changing the withdrawal agreement, have talked about changing the backstop, have talked about taking it out. That's not something that is simply up for negotiation. What is possibly Mm. there to change, to amend, to adopt is the future relationship and and what's known as the political declaration, which goes side by side, shall we say, with the withdrawal agreement. Mm. That has always been the case, and we have always said that. But legally, the position, as it currently stands, is that by default they would leave without a deal, and and that's something that we absolutely want to to avoid. So that brings us to a general election, doesn't it? I mean, most likely... Mr Johnson is going to find himself in a position that he cannot leave with a deal that is agreeable to his colleagues in the Conservative Party or to a majority in Westminster. So he's going to have to say, look, the only way we can do this is by going to a general election or another referendum. Well, again, I think it's it's difficult to predict what might happen. I mean, there are some who are saying that there will be a general election in the next number of weeks or, or early months. There are some who are saying there might be a possibility now of a second referendum. There are others who are saying that Boris will leave or that the, the Prime Minister will leave without a deal and that there will be a crash-out Brexit. Obviously, again, the latter is the one that we want to avoid. The others, we have no saying and we have no influence over whether they happen or not obviously and and again without getting into too much commentary on on, on the political situation we've seen a number of resignations in in the last few days we know that there have been again further amendments in the last week where you had um, the House of Commons vote 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. To prevent any Prime Minister from suspending the Parliament to allow a no-deal to go through, But again, that doesn't actually prevent a no deal from happening. The legal position, because they triggered the Article 50, Mm. the minute you trigger that process, you set a wheel in motion, which cannot be undone unless the agreement is ratified or unless they revoke it. They pull it back and and they say that we we want to stop this process from happening. And so without that, the legal mechanism or the the legal back uh, fallback is, is mm. that the leave without a deal so you know I, I, I really would and, and I think I, I hope that Taoiseach will, will get to speak to the Prime Minister mm. in the next few days obviously he will have to travel throughout the United Kingdom but in speaking to him I'm sure that Taoiseach will reiterate the fact that we have an agreement it was negotiated with the UK by the UK so much mm. of what's in it was asked for by the UK and all that we want is for them to fulfil the commitments and for him now as Prime Minister to follow through on the commitments that his government has made. And he's a very colourful character, there's no doubt about it, uh, and he captures the imagination of many people, people who love him and people who despise him in equal amounts, it it would seem, and uh, many would describe him as a buffoon, many would describe him as a a very intelligent person, and some would say that there's a very intelligent person behind the buffoon, or another way of putting that is he might be thick, but he's not stupid. Uh, And it would seem as though to crash out uh, would be the nuclear option and not even Boris Johnson is that stupid. So there is the real prospect uh, that this will be extended past the 31st of October, isn't there? Well, I think what we need to do now is obviously await his appointment today because that still has to happen. Await his his probably speech this afternoon and and see maybe the direction that he's moving in. But I know Michel Barnier, who is still chief negotiator, who is still leading this, very clearly in his own statements and his own words yesterday said, we want to engage with the new Prime Minister. We have to ratify the withdrawal agreement to be able to move this forward. And so I think it's important that he and his team and whoever he points, uh, appoints as Brexit negotiator or chief or, or, or minister for leaving the European Union 
that they engage as quickly as possible with the mm. task force and with the team uh, and obviously what comes from that we will work with the task force as well but you know the facts don't change the fact that we have a new Prime Minister is one thing mm. but that's not going to change the withdrawal agreement the backstop or just for us and, and, and to protect our own uh, interests how important and necessary it still is e- even more so than ever I would say Okay uh, I'm not going to ask you to name uh, your preferred candidate for Northern Secretary although you're welcome to do that if you wish Minister but what would you like to see the next Secretary do? Well, I, I think what's important is that there is a, a huge focus on reinstating the institutions of the North. That's obviously been the case for the past two years, and unfortunately, sure, we, we've, we've been unsuccessful so far. But, but which steps would you like the next Northern Secretary to take to achieve that? I, I think it's about engaging with all political parties, and I think the difference between this more recent engagement um, is that we have all five political parties as part of this process. We're focused on a number of key issues. We're focused on, uh, you know, it's been split into various different sectors and groups led by some of the senior civil servants in Northern Ireland. And I think we need to continue that process. The longer this goes on, the more negative impact it has on Northern Ireland, the more challenging it is for their own economy to be able to progress various different projects and plans. But also it leaves a huge, I, I think, a void when it comes to the Brexit negotiations, when it comes to the voice being clearly heard um, as to what it is that people in Northern Ireland, the industries and sectors are looking and asking for. And I think any person who's working in Northern Ireland needs to be able to listen to those various different sectors and organisations and and represent all parties, but also represent all uh, all interests as well. Okay, Minister, while you're with us, can I ask you about some domestic issues, some internal Fine Gael issues, uh, if I may. Uh, can you tell us why Ray Butler was uh, deselected as an election candidate? I, I can't, I'm afraid that that's not something that I'm involved in or party to. That was a decision that was made by the National Executive and, and that's all that I know and, and you know, that, that's all that I know. It's not something that I would have been party to involved with. Really? Um, Did you not ask? Well, it, it, it's a process and, and the decision that was decided by the National Executive. They're the body. They have representatives from our own political party that are on it, um, as well as members from around the, the country. And, and they make decisions, I suppose, based on... Mm. on evidence engagement and, and other things. Yeah, but this, the, the, this man lost his seat as a, a TD. There were many questions surrounding uh, 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 some activity uh, uh, that Ray Butler never addressed, refused to engage in conversation with, stopped, went to ground, stopped taking interviews, stopped talking to his local radio station and was appointed a senator by the Taoiseach of the day, Enda Kenny. Now he's being deselected as a, a candidate for Fine Gael, uh, and uh, one of the senior members in the county doesn't know why and hasn't asked why. Is it, God, should you not have asked why, Minister? Well, this is not for me to comment on. It's absolutely, to be honest, I, I've worked with Ray Butler and I've always found him a very good colleague to work with. He has been deselected. It's not a decision that was uh, in any way connected with me or any other person within our county. Um, I wish him well for the future, but this is a decision that was taken by the party. And other than that, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to comment on on anything else. Do you think somebody should comment? Uh, Do you think that your constituents would like to know and have a right to know? Well, I I think it's up to Deputy Butler to engage if he wants to on this issue. But I think Senator Butler has been, sorry, Senator Butler, he lost his seat uh, and then was appointed a senator and then uh, kept the money that he should have given back. uh, Said that he wouldn't take, uh, and it took an inordinate amount of time to pay back that money. 
again, this is not something that, that I'm party to. Anything, mm. any concerns, as far as I'm aware, that were raised have been resolved. He is no longer a deputy. He will no longer be on the ticket. And as far as I'm concerned, I really don't have anything further to say than to wish him well. Um, and I, you know, I, I think anybody that mm. knows him will have the opportunity, I'm sure, to, to speak to him. Um, but for me, I, I really well, don't. I doubt his local radio station will. I doubt his local radio station will. Um, do, do, do you think that Fine Gael has been torn apart by the Maria Bailey controversy? And has the Taoiseach bottled it in terms of failing to sanction her? Well, I think he very clearly has sanctioned her. The, the chair of the Housing Committee is quite in, I suppose, if, if you look at all the committees, it's one of the more high-profile committees and to lose that um, is certainly not uh, having no action taken against her. It's obviously been a very very much a focus of the media for the past number of months. She's kept Maria the whip. And on her personal case. Many in Fine Gael feels, feel she should have lost the party whip. Well, I've, I've read reports, I'm sure as everybody else had, that there are some who are unhappy. Personally, I accept the decision that the Taoiseach has taken. He is the one who's party to uh, the internal inquiry. And, and I, again, accept why it's not been published. There were people who took part in the understanding that it was uh, not to be published. Um, but there were some elements of it which were made public in his statement yesterday. The fact that she was injured, the fact that the case itself was taken, it, it was found to be not fraudulent. But... There were elements of it, and okay, do you, do you, we could do you accept, all see publicly how. Do you accept there's a vision in Finnegale over this? Well, again, I've not spoken to any of my colleagues on this since yesterday. Okay, um, so okay. okay. What about? I've been in my constituency. Okay, for, okay. I, haven't, I haven't spoken to okay. anybody on it. Okay, okay, I'm sure you will. Um, what about Josepha Madigan? Uh, do you believe the minister should make a, a statement in relation to her role in advising Maria Bailey? Personally, I don't think she does need to. Again, looking at the statement that was made by the Taoiseach, I think it's clear that she gave, as a solicitor at the time, she was not a TD or, or a minister, she gave initial advice. Um, that was that there was a case um, and it was then taken over by solicitors. And again, I think later on there was questions by the, 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 the solicitor's office that there was possible discrepancies within the, the account. And I think, again, that was made very clear so I personally I don't think that there's anything further to add to that or to clarify she gave initial advice it was taken and then obviously it's up to an individual person if they take a claim if they continue with the case as to what they do themselves so I I, you know I think that was made very clear from what I have seen in the Taoiseach statement yesterday so I I wouldn't be be asking for anything further. Okay Minister thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us as always Uh, that is uh, the Minister for European Affairs Helen McEntee of Fine Gael TD in Meath East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Currens has come back into uh, the studio with uh, some of the calls and text messages that have been coming this morning, Marie. I sure am here and there's lots coming in in relation to Boris Johnson. Um, Tom wants to know, does anyone really take Boris Johnson seriously, Michael? Yes. I cannot believe he's been selected leader of the Conservative mm, Party. But he has, so you have to take him seriously. He's now, a very powerful man about to become Prime mm, Minister. Yeah, mm. He thinks it's a catastrophe, not just for Ireland, obviously. He mm. thinks it will be for Ireland because of the whole thing about Brexit yeah. and the implications of that. But he also thinks it will be 
bad news in the end for the UK. I don't know, but you have to take him seriously. That's the only thing I do know, because he is the leader of the Conservative Party and will be the next British Prime Minister. Sean from Drogheda was listening to the um, audio that you played in relation to Donald Trump mm. endorsing Boris Johnson. Great guy. Say. Great guy, yeah. Great guy. <laughs> do a great job with Mr. Fresh. <laughs> well, Sean says they may be best buddies now, mm. but it probably won't last too long before they fall out mm. because Trump's friendships don't seem to last. Britain Trump. <laughs> yeah. You're enjoying that, Michael, a little bit no. too much for my liking. No, 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 no. no. Uh, Stephen says, democracy is democracy, Michael. Mm. Whether we think it was a good idea or not, idea or not the P- British people have voted and uh, Boris has been elected, the Absolutely, leader of yeah. the Conservative Party. That's what, that's what uh, democracy is all about. And if it results in a hard Brexit, then so be it. Okay. A texter wants mm. to know what's your problem with Donald Trump. <laughs> My problem with yes. Donald Trump. <laughs> well, uh, hold on. <laughs> There's only 40 minutes left in the programme. I don't have a problem with Donald Trump. I have many problems with Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, tr- uh, from Martin, it annoys me greatly when I hear British politicians refer to the so-called border between the six counties and the 26 counties as the Irish border. The so-called border between the six counties and the 26 counties is a British border in Ireland implemented by, by British politicians in Ireland in 1922. OK. Uh, Michael says, another listener, can you give Boris a rest, please? <laughs> mm. John, <laughs> I wish we could. I wish we could. Yeah. John says the hysterical response to the election of Boris Johnson reminds me of the same reaction when Trump got the top job. Mm. He was ridiculed too in the media, but despite what everybody thought, Michael, he's still there. Yeah, everybody thought mm. he'd come and he'd be gone mm. almost as soon as he arrived. Well, I th- but I, he's I, still I, there. I think I think we thought he'd be gone because we thought he'd blow himself up with the rest of us. And I suppose the amazing thing is that we're all still here despite him being in office as long as he has. Uh, let's uh, go to some local issues and uh, the removal of some 600 tonnes of rubbish from Meath Hill. Fianna Fáil Councillor Paul McCabe is on the line. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, that's a, a lot of rubbish. It certainly is, Michael. Uh, 600 tonnes, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's nearly beyond belief. Um, as you say, back in, in early May, there was a discovery made uh, that this huge pile of rubbish uh, had been dumped uh, over the space of what we think is four or five days. Um, it was dumped in, in two separate uh, Quilshire-owned forests uh, one in Barley Hill and one in, in Drumgill, uh, just outside Meath Hill. Uh, it's the most northerly point of, of County Meath. It's right on the on the Meath Cabin border. Um, and over the last uh, couple of uh, months since the discovery, uh, Quilsha have spent over €100,000 uh, clearing up the rubbish. And I want to commend the efforts of Quilsha and indeed Meath County Council uh, in clearing up the rubbish. It was a huge mammoth task to get rid of this in a, in a proper um, and uh, in a proper in a proper way, and to, to dispose of it in an authorised facility. Mm, and who paid for it? Who paid for it? The taxpayer paid for it. Mm. I'm afraid, Michael. Um, I mean, Meath County Council themselves. In this case, Quilsha uh, footed the bill uh, yeah. because, mm. as I say, it was Quilsha owned lands. 
Uh, but last year, uh, Meath County Council spent just under two million uh, again of taxpayers' money. Mm. Um, in clearing. it really is incredible, isn't it? For you know, for people getting out of bed uh, in a haze this morning, thinking, "God, I have a long day ahead." Uh, to think that part of the money that they earn will go to tidy up after people like this. Certainly, um, but what I would mm. say is, Michael, and I would, I would remind householders that you know the the, the man in the van solution to, to refuse collection is not acceptable anymore um, and this is not a victimless crime um, the, the, the impact um, on, on the local environment mm. I mean this, this sort of this industrial and domestic waste it can cause huge issues environmentally um, for drinking water it can damage our biodiversity so as I said this is not a victimless crime and people need to realise that you know, a fella coming round in a high ace van collecting rubbish at a relatively inexpensive, at a relative, relatively inexpensive price is is not acceptable. And this is what this is the end product um, of that. Mm. And that man in the van should have to pay the consequences. You want to see greater fines for people uh, who take rubbish like that and dump it in our countryside? Certainly, and I, I suppose I would point out that um, Quidditch and Meath County Council, together with on Garda Siakana are working very hard uh, to to try and identify who who was responsible for this huge um, this huge dumping um, in in Meath Hill. Now, so far, they, they, I know that they, they have a number of leads and they're, they're following up uh, extensively on those. But unfortunately, um, we haven't been able to identify anybody just yet. And I know they're they're, they're trawling through a number a lot of CCTV footage from the area as well uh, from approaching the site. And I know Meath County Council and Quilsha, as I said, together with Angarda Shiakon, are working really, really hard uh, to identify those responsible and to bring them to justice. But no, you're right. I think it mm. is time that the government crack down um, on, illegal dumping, on illegal dumping and increasing the fines for those that are caught uh, fly-tipping or illegal dumping. OK, we leave there for the moment. Thanks, Paul, for that. Uh, that's uh, Fianna Fáil councillor in Meath, Paul McCabe. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and some of the comments you have there, Marie. Yes, Michael, just to say during the review of the papers, we were talking mm. about the success of Dundalk's Kate O'Connor winning that silver medal in the heptathlon at the European Championships. And there's lots of good wishes coming in from her. One person who got in touch was Pat McDade and he mentioned the events, Michael, because you asked me and I couldn't remember mm. them all out all offhand. There's actually... Uh, in the women's outdoors, there's actually 100 metres hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, the 200 metres, the long jump, the javelin mm. and the 800 metres. Right. So you have to do so mm. well in all of them. So okay. it really is a remarkable okay. achievement, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. well done to her. Absolutely, yeah. No, actually, you're right. You didn't uh, remember them all. You didn't no, remember most no, of them. No, most there. of them. I, thought, I was thinking, God, was there yeah. three? I remember yeah. when I was yeah. just flicking through the story, I remember reading about three different events, how she had done well in them. So that's yeah. why that was yeah. on my it's mind. It's seven, is it? Is it's that what you seven. said? Yeah, seven, yeah, okay, seven in total. Yeah, well so fair play. Hmm. Uh, going then, if I can, to Theresa from County Meath because she was listening into your interview with Minister Helen McEntee hmm. and she says it's just a pity that Helen is not the Taoiseach. She thinks that she's so good at her job and that she really knows what she's talking about hmm. in relation to her particular brief as Minister for European Affairs. Okay. And she says, I just think she's magnificent and she is not related, but she is a voter in her area. <laughs> So thanks, Mm, Teresa, for taking the time to phone in about that. We'll finish on that one, Michael. Okay, thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. You might remember the dispute uh, that uh, 10,000 support workers in the health service have with uh, the HSE and indeed catering staff, the chefs in the HSE, have with uh, the uh, body because of pay due to them that has gone unpaid, uh, pay increases that has gone unpaid. Uh, It's uh, disappeared to to some degree to allow for talks. Those talks have been in the Labour Court over some 10 working days. Paul Bell, SIPTU Health Division Organiser, joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks morning, for joining us. Uh, the talks have concluded at this stage, I take it? Yes, well, just a bit of history. The Workplace Relations Commission have engaged with the parties over an eight-day period previous to the Labour Court. Uh, unfortunately, that was deemed unsuccessful and it resulted in a, in a one-day strike. And we had now an unprecedented engagement with the Labour Court, which went on for almost eight days uh, some very long periods, but as of yesterday, uh, the Labour Court had declared formally that they had listened to the parties, had understood the issues, and basically were now in a position to um, advise that they would, in due course, issue a Labour Court recommendation. And we understand that that recommendation, or recommendations, uh, possibly, uh, will be available within the next 10 working days. Now, this is a relief, I suppose, for mm. patients because they do know that their hospital services will continue. Uh, it's also some relief for staff who want their issues resolved uh, without any disruption. And the Labour Court does offer the best opportunity uh, for the parties to actually resolve this dispute. It has been extremely difficult, uh, and the, the Labour Court, I would say, was, has been very, very patient uh, with the parties. But at the end of the day, mm. our members uh, are owed monies on the uh, agreements and they are owed processes to gain monies also that they have agreed to and we do hope that the Labour Court will in some way be able to resolve the dispute. On an individual basis uh, those increases are worth between 1500 and 3000 a year to your members. Yeah. Uh, about 16 million overall if I remember correctly mm-hmm. uh, uh, as a cost to the state uh, but a, a cost that was agreed with by the HSE and the Department of Health. They signed up to this uh, and the government has said it's a question of interpretation. Yes they've agreed to pay it but it's a question of when they will pay it uh, which uh, is a little difficult I'm sure for some of your members uh, to understand Uh, but the Department of Public Expenditure says not yet not till 2020 or 2021 is it? Well actually uh, when we started this uh, particular engagement uh, our members resolve was being tested uh, and there was conversations about well we'll we as government will pay members in phase one and two of job evaluation in 2022 or 2021 uh, as part of a future public service agreement. Uh, we made this very clear to the government uh, that there's a presumption on their part that there will be a public service agreement, uh, which our members at some stage would consider w- was it good or would it be good for them or not. The other issue Michael quite rightly put out uh, to members was a job evaluation process for support staff members was agreed back in 2015 and uh, the job evaluation process is an independent process and basically when those uh, results would come back from the various job evaluations for various grades throughout the hospital services uh, within the country well then you're supposed to start paying these. Uh, we were very very clear that phase one and two was due to be paid and obviously then government decided not to engage. What is very disappointing uh, from our side, and this is not a matter for the court, 
is how this was allowed to get to a strike action situation when government did know from the start that air members would come looking for monies due and that's the troubling part for air members and, and it, it really went to the brink I mean you were out for a, a day and you were on the brink of a, a three day strike uh, when this went back into talks uh, you said at the time uh, that you hadn't exhausted the talks in the Workplace Relations Commission which is why you didn't want to go into the Labour Court where you may face uh, a binding ruling uh, You've obviously got to a situation where you've gone into the Labour Court. That's concluded its hearings. It's about to issue its recommendations. Will SIPTA be bound by them? Uh, no, what uh, actually will happen with the Labour Court recommendation, uh, as put to us by the Labour Court right from the start, our members will have a say on the outcome of the recommendation. Uh, we would hope, obviously, to be in a position that the, uh, we would see the issues addressed sufficiently where we could make a recommendation. But that's, to be, that's second-guessing. But on the question of arbitration and so forth, be very clear, we will be putting the Labour Court recommendation or recommendations to to a vote of our members throughout the country. And that's what we intend to do, because in fairness to the Labour Court, they would have asked for the parties to try and work with their recommendation, whatever may come. Uh, And we gave the undertaking that we would work as hard as possible uh, to ensure that that would happen. Obviously, members will make up their minds what's good for them and what's not good for them. Uh, we will give advice at that time, having, of course, waited to see what the court has to say, and I'm not going to get into a space where I'm second-guessing. The arguments have been made to an exhaustive level over the last number of weeks, uh, and, and, and rightly so, Mike, you pointed out also that leading up to going into the Labour Court, we also had deferred two days of strike action, because it, we knew that a three-day strike action in the health service would actually paralyse Uh, hospital service throughout the country and that's something that we didn't really want to get into but having said that our members were resolute this is about low pay in hospital services it's also caught the imagination of those in other sectors of the economy who are fighting low pay campaigns that to see that basically low paid workers can organize very effectively when they have to and also what's happened with this dispute is that Support service workers throughout the hospital services are now identifiable to the public in what they actually provide in in the everyday okay. operation of a hospital just, or a health service. Just very, very briefly, Paul, for your members listening, when can they expect to hear these recommendations from the Labour Court? We would hope that the Labour Court will be in a position to issue a Labour Court recommendation or recommendations to us uh, sometime around the 6th or 7th or 8th of August. That's what we would hope. But again, we leave that to the court. They've indicated 10 walking days, but we'll, we'll walk with them. OK, we'll leave it there. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Now, we were uh, speaking uh, with Minister Helen McEntee uh, just a, a short while ago. Uh, somewhat surprising to hear the Minister say she doesn't know why Ray Butler has been deselected as a candidate in Mead West in the next election. Uh, but uh, she was a little clearer about Maria Bailey and supportive of uh, the Taoiseach's uh, position not to remove her as an election candidate or suspect Bender and feels that she has been demoted because she has been removed as uh, the chair of uh, the Housing Committee and she also believes uh, that uh, Josepha Madigan uh, has no case to answer. Let's uh, see if uh, that's the consensus in Fine Gael because the Minister also said she hasn't spoken with people in Fine Gael and doesn't know if there's division in the party over this. Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner is on the line. Good morning Daniel and Good thanks morning, for joining welcome. us. What are you hearing from Fine Gael? Yeah, I, I would certainly disagree with Helen McIntyre to a certain degree that um, not everyone is satisfied that the Taoiseach's 
uh, decision to demote her is sufficient. I think there's quite a lot of people who would have much preferred to have seen her lose the whip, given the, the I suppose, the, the heat and the, the damage she did, <clears throat> and her decision to, to take the case and the revelations uh, that, you know, that the impact it had on the, uh, the election campaign, both at local level and at the European, uh, you know, the U- European elections. There was certainly an expectation. There was reports at the weekend. Uh, I think Faye Kelly in the Irish Times had a story at the weekend saying, suggesting very strongly that she would be, uh, she would lose the whip. Um, but obviously, it was very clear from the Taoiseach statement that he uh, he certainly considered it, but um, came down at the came down on the side of of, of just demoting her from from the, the 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 housing committee and not and not any further because I think had he gone further, you know, he would have I suppose why well, it might have satisfied some of the hardliner guys and some of the more annoyed elements within his own party. I think it would have created uh, a, a, a difficulty in terms of dollar arithmetic because you know that they're, they're already in a minority position. And facing into you know going into the fact that there you know there are four by elections that have to be contested between now and, and the end of the year, um, you know to to, to yeah. add another one to that kind of debit column would would really be uh, I think a bridge too far. So I think it's a pragmatic decision. I think it's slightly compassionate given the fact that Maria Bailey has just lost her father as well. I think she's kind of lucky that way. Um, that um, you know that that I think the teacher has has has, has looked to his compassionate side rather mm-hmm. um, rather than kind of being more draconian as he as he was well within his rights to do so. How, how will it wash with the public? Uh, do you think, uh, given that Linda Murray of uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform was telling us yesterday that you can't get insurance now for anywhere that provides facilities to have fun in? Fun is kind of outlawed in this country because you can't get the insurance uh, with the withdrawal of uh, that company from the Irish market. Uh, and uh, them uh, refusing uh, new premiums uh, from next month onwards. Yeah, I mean, that sort of disparity or that conflict was referred to in the Taoiseach statement. He basically said that her action, Maria Bailey's actions and her decision to take the case and the, the persistence with the case, uh, while the government itself that she's a part of or certainly supports in Dáil Éireann, uh, is trying to tackle compo culture. You know, it, it was certainly in conflict and certainly at odds with that. Like, so therefore, it was one of the issues that that certainly kind of drew some of the heat. Uh, it was kind of you know because it, accu- it sort of allowed Fine Gael to be accused of you know do as you do as we say, not as we do, um, which uh, they they have been uh, accused of being you know or, or you know accused of being in in the past. I, I think for Maria Bailey though, I think you know it's a sorry episode. I think she'd be glad to see the back of. Um, she's certainly a loser in all of this. I mean, she had quite a promising career. She was. You know, albeit that she had supported Simon Coveney in the leadership heave, um, her stock was sort of rising a bit because you know she was Dublin based. She had done well as the chair of the housing committee. It's a shame now I would actually see her go because I actually think she's done pretty well. It's, it's an issue she'd really kind of put her heart and soul into and, and kind of made it her own to a, to a certain degree. Um, so I mean, it's it's a painful lesson for her as to you know you know the rough end of politics. But I mean, ultimately, you know, it was a, it was a mess of her own making. Are there more questions for Minister Josepha Madigan? Yeah, I think there are legitimate questions being asked now. I think, you know, I think at the very least, I think Josepha Madigan, now that this inquiry has concluded, I think she will have to at least make a statement on the matter as to exactly what she did advise and uh, why she did so. Um, you know, I mean, like the teacher has concluded that she has no case to answer in terms of that, you know, um, in terms of the advice. And, you know, this, I suppose it's a difficulty where politics and personal interests kind of collide here. But certainly, you know, there's a depth of anger within Fine Gael, um, as to what happened, as, as, as the fact that the case kind of was allowed to proceed, the teacher's uh, statement, however, did I, I think give an out to Josepha Madigan in that uh, Maria Bailey was warned consistently that you know she could have fall, fell liable to a kind of a uh, um, 
to, to a kind of a negligence that, or a contrib- contributory negligence that she was essentially because she was on the swing and holding drinks that they could have had a, a, a case brought against her uh, and despite all that, that the case still went ahead like so mm. I think that's the out for Josepha Madigan I think that's that, that's the kind of the crux of which I think she'll defend herself okay. but I think there's, there's certainly a legitimate argument for her to answer more questions and Micheál Martin was certainly asking her to do so uh, up in Glenties last night Indeed he's saying there's inconsistencies in the stories and he wants transparency but is it the usual case of Fianna Fáil huffing and puffing and then referring to Brexit uh, but uh, even if it is that, uh, are we looking at uh, the prospect of Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, finding himself in a corner uh, and having to get out of that by going to an election? Should that be the case? Uh, would we be looking at an election here? I think so. I, I would certainly think that you know, Brexit has been the one reason why Micheál Martin has stopped uh, short of, of pulling the government down, which is he, he's now within his rights to do so because essentially it's, you know, they have completed the three years of confidence and supply uh, he rather surprisingly uh, committed to another budget uh, late last year on the basis of Brexit. Like, but he he didn't seek anything in return. He essentially he was looking for, um, you know, he was looking just just to kind of I, I think to appear statesmanlike. And uh, now that went down very badly amongst some of his own who were already unhappy with the whole idea of confidence and supply, uh, and particularly the fact that they didn't get any major concessions from them uh, from Fine Gael in relation to that. Um, but if Brexit is part or certainly there's a gap, I would certainly think that the, the, the opportunity or the, the, the window for an election here opens up uh, quite considerably. But like the danger is, 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 Mike, is that we're probably going to see the circus roll on until October anyway, because I think just for a pure negotiation uh, tactic, you don't kind of show your hand too early in a fight. And I would certainly think that if uh, if things are going to have to be managed and managed probably you know pretty carefully, I think we're likely to see a bit of brinkmanship between now and October, which would rule out any sort of September, October, November election here. I would I would have thought so. You're then kind of talking into the spring, if for example there's another extension to sometime next year in terms of Brexit, that would certainly open up to say a kind of a February or March election, um, and and that is very that is very lucky because I like whatever about getting the next budget through. There's still a lot of doubt around Leinster House as to whether or not that's actually viable or possible. Anything beyond that, I think, is just pure fantasy. So, I mean, it's just a question. If it's not this year, it's a question of when next year the election would be, whether it be in the springtime, as I said, or it would be later in the year. So I, I definitely think um, you know, if any sort of gap, I would definitely think that, 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 that the chance of a general election here increased significantly. OK, thank you very much indeed, as always. Daniel McConnell, political editor with The Irish Examiner. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Hill of Tara has been told to to remove its visitor book, not just uh, the Hill of Tara. The direction comes from uh, the Office of uh, Public Works and it's told the Hill of Tara or its Anukdaran, Government Buildings, Kilkenny Castle, the Rock of Cashel, Skellig Michael, Kilmainham Jail, Dublin Castle, Muckross House. We could go on uh, to remove these visitor books because of fears that they're breaching EU privacy and data protection rules, namely GDP or the General Data Protection Regulation Rules. And uh, there's been uh, some confusion, indeed, a lot of head-scratching uh, about this direction. Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on tourism, Mark McSherry, is on the line. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you understand no, the, the direction or are you scratching your head? Oh, very much scratching my head. I mean, it's totally unnecessary uh, and illogical. Uh, I mean, for many years, people have attended uh, all of the OPW sites that's all over the country, or indeed exhibitions that pop up from time to time. Uh, and you would typically 
pop down, you know, Michael from Drogheda, great show, and, and so on. I mean, you're not putting PPS numbers or, or dates of birth or your, your, your detailed address and postcode on it. So uh, I think this is an over-the-top over interpretation uh, of the regulations and the rules, which, for example, could be quite easily overcome by mm. a little note beside the book or a sign uh, beside it saying, look, you know, don't discern any uh, very specific personal information, such as dates of birth or... Um, you know, accurate addresses. Um, so I think um, uh, this is a retrograde step. I, I don't think it's in keeping with the kind of tourism product we're trying to put forward. I think it's unnecessary in terms of GDPR and lacks imagination in terms of how to meet those regulations. Uh, and the other thing is, it, uh, you know, where is it all going to stop? I mean, we had um, the great entertainer, the late Brendan Grace lately, um, with, with books of condolence in various spots around Dublin, particularly the Mansion House. Uh, I mean, are we going to have to stop that too? Are we going to have to stop it when people uh, attend funerals and funeral homes generally where they sign a book to, oh my God, to, give yeah. their, mm. uh, to make their respects? So I think... Um, or to have that note... To, yeah. to have that kind of note uh, beside it uh, which would uh, imply consent or uh, addresses uh, specifically. Indeed, that seems to be the view of uh, the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, who has said that that would overcome this problem. Uh, but if you don't overcome the problem, I think the fear that the OPW has is that they would be fined for breaching these rules and those fines are quite significant and up to a million euro. They are, but, but I mean, uh, I think she, they must take their guidance from the Protection Commissioner. Uh, I mean, there are regular lines of, uh, of, of communication between all aspects of the EU and our own governmental departments to check what, what is workable. And I have no doubt that something like that uh, is workable. Uh, I mean, it, it, it really, you know, defies logic the way some things have been interpreted. I mean, it's not that I want to be cavalier mm. about data protection. We know that these issues uh, are supporting um, a, a very big money economy in terms of the sale of people's personal data. And indeed, from a party perspective, we've introduced the Data Protection Amendment Bill, which focuses on trying to prevent the processing of children's personal data for the marketing, for example, for junk food or whatever, and we hope to take that through next year. But, you know, so I'm not dismissing GDPR as an important aspect of law, uh, but, you know, we, we, we need to use a little bit of common sense um, you know, well, many it. people would feel that it's over the top or they're fearful that it's over the top uh, especially if you apply it to the letter and the OPW might argue exactly that that they're applying the rules as they understand them Yeah, well I think that there needs to be common sense and often we see the literal interpretation of a law or a rule or a guideline um, you know, can betray the spirit with which these things were put in place in the first mm. place I mean, I'll give you one example that happened to me in the course of last week a former colleague of mine, a member of the Senate, but no longer a member of the House I was trying to contact, didn't have a number for him. And I said, well, look, I'll, I'll ring the clerk of the Senate, the Senate, uh, who surely probably has an email address or some contact details for them. Now, the clerk of the Senate would be uh, aware that I served with this person, know this person extremely well. Um, and, and I asked, could they pass on an email address or a phone number or whatever? And under GDPR, no, they cannot. So mm. they could contact that person, and that person in turn contacted me. So you know, that, that, that's you know, kind of a bit stupid in mm. my view. So yeah. I think mm. it's important we have rules, uh, but I think a little bit like a sat-nav. I think mm. you know, if we're following a sat-nav, to the letter of the law, we're going to end up in a ditch with roadworks. Yeah. Or up so a one-way street. I think when there's yeah. guidelines yeah. like laws mm. like this, 
they're to be interpreted and used with the benefit of some adult common sense. And I think that's what's absent on this occasion. Okay, and what is going to happen now, do you think? I mean, this direction came from the OPW to the heritage sites. Uh, I take it that it's not going to be enforced. Well, we're certainly going to raise it with the OPW, with the Minister for the OPW and the Secretary-General of the Department, pleading that uh, the common sense we've just spoke of uh, can be applied in this case, because I think it has implications for a great many other aspects of visitors' books, uh, condolences' Mm. books, funerals and so on, that it's just unnecessary. And I think, you know, when somebody is coming to Ireland and they visited the Hill of Tara for the Mm. first time and there's a visitors' book and they're from Chicago, they might like to say... John from Chicago, yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, what yeah. is the problem with yeah, that? They're not yeah. giving their social security number or in an Irish yeah. context a PPS number, data bar. Well, the chairman of Kilmainham Jail, I think, was making a, a very good point, uh, particularly about uh, visitors uh, from America or elsewhere who have Irish roots and uh, want to sign the visitors' book uh, in remembrance of uh, the 1916 martyrs uh, and want to feel associated or affiliated with them in some way as part of the tour, and they're being denied part of the experience by not being allowed to do that. Absolutely. And I've been to Kilmainham Jail and done that myself. Mm. Uh, um, and uh, and so many other aspects of our tourism infrastructure around the country. So, okay. uh, as I said, I mean, as a party, we've been making contact with the OBW uh, and asking them uh, to withdraw this instruction and perhaps as a, a, as a, a step or a halfway house that they mm. can, you know, write a small sign or a note to say, please don't discern or impart uh, personal data by way of social security numbers. PPS numbers or accurate addresses and postcodes. And I think they'd be perfectly compliant in that while at the same time respecting our own rights to um, to, to, to to sign these books and note that we've been there. Okay, thank you uh, for taking your call uh, this morning. I- I'll read out your telephone number. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> but, uh, my, my, my telephone number <laughs> is on the internet. So yeah. There's no problem with that. <laughs> okay, listen, thank you very much indeed. Mark McSherry, Fianna Fáil's uh, spokesperson on transport. As you know, Boris Johnson has been elected uh, the leader of uh, the Conservative Party and today he is destined to become uh, the next British Prime Minister at a pivotal moment in history. And today, at this pivotal moment in our history, we again have to reconcile two sets of instincts, two noble sets of instincts, between the deep desire for friendship and free trade and mutual support in security and defence between Britain and our European partners, and the simultaneous desire, equally deep and heartfelt, for democratic self-government in this country. And of course, there are some people who say that they're irreconcilable, and it just can't be done. And indeed, I read in my Financial Times this morning, devoted reader that I am, seriously, it's a great, 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 great British, great British brand, I read in my Financial Times this morning that there are no incoming leader, no incoming leader has ever faced such a daunting set of circumstances, it said. Well, I look at you this morning and I ask myself, do you look daunted? Do you feel daunted? I don't think, I don't think you look remotely daunted uh, to me. And I think that we know that we can do it and that the people of this country are trusting in us to do it and we know that we will do it. And we know the mantra of the campaign that has just gone by. In case you've forgotten it, you probably have. It's always a couple of, it is deliver Brexit, 
unite the country and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to defeat Jeremy Corbyn. I know, I know some wag has already pointed out that deliver, unite and defeat was not the perfect acronym for an election campaign, since unfortunately it spells dud. But they forgot the final E, my friends. E for energise. And I say, I say to all the doubters, dude, we are going to energise the country. We're going to get Brexit done. That dude brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.